episode 57 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or anyone that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. And you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. And I am so grateful, as per usual, to be partnered with the folks at Bloom for Women. If you head over to bloomforwomen.com, um, Bloom offers online programs, expert help, uh, an entire empathetic community um, to help women who, who to heal, to strengthen, to grow past the trauma of, of infidelity, betrayal, any type of betrayal, trauma, and just phenomenal results from people who are stopping by bloomforwomen.com. And it's a, it's a very inexpensive program to begin with, but if you use the, the code virtual couch, all one word, um, you can have a month kind of behind that paywall. And I think that you will, uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised with, um, just uh, all of the research, the data that's there, the, and again, this healing community. So um, please, if there's any type of betrayal trauma, I would encourage any women to go to bloomforwomen.com and again, use that virtual couch uh, coupon code, all one word. Um, okay, today is one of those topics that I look at as one of my soapbox uh, topics. Um, I've talked about these different topics in the past. Some of these are the reasons why I wanted to do a podcast. And some of those have been this EFT, emotionally focused therapy, this couples therapy that I love that uh, just changes the lives of couples who learn this entirely new paradigm or way to communicate. Another one has been this nurtured heart parenting style. Um, again, I absolutely just, I, I believe in the nurtured heart. I believe it's a wonderful way to parent. It's a wonderful way to interact with people in general. And I have a couple of podcasts out about that. Um, I've got this concept called the emotional baseline, which I feel is something that really can help people feel better about themselves, elevate them from, uh, from depression and help them if they're dealing with, um, you know, anxiety, stress, depression, anything like that. But this is one of those that, that I, again, am passionate about. And, the, and you probably already read in the title, I want to talk about being happy and I want to talk about what stops us from being happy, the challenges of being happy. Is it even normal to be happy? Is happiness even normal? Can money buy happiness? I want to cover as much as we can today. And I feel like this is one of those that um, I have a lot of notes in front of me, but I'm probably going to just go go off the beaten path. I'm going to go on some tangents. Um, so uh, so buckle up because this is one of those things that I, I am truly passionate about. And I don't want you to think I'm just going to say, hey, everybody can just choose to be happy um, because I know it can be difficult. And especially I do know as a therapist um, with people that I interact with, people that I care about, that clinical depression is real. There's help out there for people who are clinically depressed. But I know that when they hear, when people who, who suffer through clinical depression or situational depression or any type of depression believe that everyone around them, it, it's just so easy for everybody else to be and feel happy, it can even make them feel worse. So I, I want you to know that I'm aware of that. So I want to kind of take a look at where happiness comes from and what it takes to, to try to give our best effort on being happy. So with that, just a tiny bit of background on here. It's kind of interesting. I was doing a little bit of research and it wasn't until the 1990s that uh, there was a psychologist named Martin Seligman and he started to lead this new what they call the positive psychology movement, which started to place the, the whole study of human happiness right in the middle of psychological research and theory. And why that's significant to me is I do feel like when we talk to our parents or grandparents, depending on our age or great grandparents, that a lot of times there's, there is this kind of hardened philosophy. Um, you know, we talk about this as generational, 
but where, hey, you're not supposed to be happier. It's not expected to be happy. Or, you know, I, I worked for 50 years at a job I hated, and that's just what you do, that kind of thing. So sometimes I feel like it's even hard for us to even have these conversations with parents or grandparents about wanting to be happy. And and this positive psychology movement was this something that continued. It was a trend that began back in the 60s. Um, with a couple of words in the psychology arena that became very popular, this humanistic and existential psychology. So, which those kind of emphasize just this importance of reaching our our own, our, our innate individual um, potential and creating meaning in our life. So that's what this humanistic and existential psychology. So we started to look at, we're not just here because we're, you know, we're just happen to be here and we have to just go through life and, and it's, and it stinks and we don't need to talk about or think about happiness because nobody before us had happiness. Um, but that was in the sixties, this humanistic or existential psychology, which then led to this positive psychology movement. So since that time, I mean, thousands and thousands of studies and hundreds of books have been published all with the goal of increasing happiness or trying to help people live more satisfying lives and increasing their, um, their feeling of this internal well-being. So the big question then is, is why aren't we happier? Because we've got all these reported measures, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, that shows that over the last 40 years since we've had this, this awareness of trying to be happy or live these meaningful, fulfilling lives, that happiness has, for the most part, either remained stagnant or even been on the decline. So, and so then it's like, now we're trying to figure out, okay, what, why is that the case? And I think we're starting to get some good data on why, and that's what I want to share there too. Um, the part of the problem is that, that happiness isn't just one thing. And I think that's, that's a, a big, uh, piece to this puzzle. And there's a book by a woman named Jennifer Hecht. It's called The Happiness Myth. It's pretty, that's pretty fascinating. Um, so Hecht is a philosopher who studies the history of happiness and, and she proposes that we are all experiencing different types of happiness, but they aren't necessarily complementary. So some types of happiness might even conflict with others. So in other words, Having too much of one type of happiness could undermine our ability to have enough of the other. So it's almost impossible for us to simultaneously have all of these type of types of happiness that we, that we believe we need or desire, um, in great quantities. So, so for example, uh, Heck says that a satisfying life built on a successful career and a good marriage is something that unfolds over a long period of time. It takes a lot of work, but then that might require us to avoid hedonistic pleasures. Hedonistic hedonism is just, you know, whatever feels good. So it might cause us to avoid these hedon- hedonistic pleasures like partying or going on spur of the moment trips. And it also means that uh, you can't just while away too much of your time, you know, spending just one pleasant day after another lazy day after the other in, in front of good friends, which sounds great, right? So it almost is starting to kind of talk about balance. But on the other hand, keeping your nose to the grindstone. So if you are this workaholic who all you are determined to do is become successful financially or in your career, that demands that you cut back on many of life's pleasures. So in that scenario, relaxing days and friendships, as Hex says, may fall entirely by the wayside. So as happiness in one area of life increases, then it often declines in another. So you can see how this concept of happiness can start to feel pretty frustrating. So and before I get into the real the stuff that I just love, um, there is this concept that I hear all the time. And I would imagine most people have thought about this. And this is just uh, financial, you know, that, that, that at the top of things, at the top of the list, there's this concept where money, you know, money could buy happiness. And I hear that all the time. And I remember going to a training a long time ago where, you know, you, the cliche is, of course, money can't buy happiness and having a, a researcher say, well, actually, there's a little bit of data that shows that there's a, there's a, a point where it can, it, it can help. And so I just wanted to address that really quick. Um, so let me just read this. This is, uh, this, this is pretty interesting. This comes out of the money section on um, Time Magazine. So the amount of money you need to be happy, according to research. So 
it's, this was published in February 14th of 2018, Valentine's Day, as a matter of fact. So money really can buy happiness, as it turns out, and you might not need as much as you think. So there you go. That sounds good, right? A large analysis published in the Journal of Human Behavior, uh, the journal Nature of Human Behavior, used data from the Gallup World Poll, a survey of more than 1.7 million people from 164 countries to put a price on the optimal emotional well-being. And that price was, drumroll please, between sixty dollars and $75,000 a year. So which is funny because I bet there are a lot of people out there saying, hey, I make that or, or I make more than that. And I'm not, not as happy as I would like to be. So what gives? But this does align with past research. And this is some of the research I had heard before, which found that people are most happiest when they make about $75,000 a year. The funny part there is that it's not that, you know, additional money won't necessarily bring um, a bit of additional happiness, but the it's the the exponential growth of happiness after seventy five thousand dollars a year is not significant. That's almost like the sweet spot. So, well, actually, that's what this just says right here. But while the that may be the sweet spot for feeling positive emotions on a day to day basis, researchers found that a higher figure, around ninety five thousand dollars a year, is ideal for what they call life evaluation which takes into account long-term goals and peer comparisons and other of these macro-level metrics. So the researchers, they were from Purdue University, also found that it might be possible to make too much money as far as happiness was concerned. thought that was interesting. They observed uh, declines in emotional well-being and life satisfaction after the $95,000 a year mark, perhaps because being wealthy past the point required for daily comfort and purchasing power, at least, can lead to unhealthy social comparisons and unfulfilling material pursuits. And I want you to know as well that, I mean, this is just data gathered all worldwide from 1.7 million people. I saw some uh, some data not too long ago that talked about home prices around the area. And uh, I live in California, and we were, we were I think, at the, at the top. Maybe Hawaii was more. Or the cost of living and that sort of thing. So even these figures are just uh, just kind of in general to, to, to make kind of a point. Um, and then the, the research, if you ever want to go look that up again, it's from Purdue University and it's found in this Nature Human Behavior Journal. But it is pretty fascinating because they do break down that uh, where, where in the world, um, I mean, so it says all told the ideal income for life evaluation range from $35,000 a year in Latin America to one hundred twenty-five grand a year in Australia and New Zealand. So those figures do depend on where you live and also depend on your education level and that sort of thing too. But so can money buy happiness? It's not going to buy happiness, but uh, there's a certain point where um, you are going to you're going to experience um, not as much of a of a of an increase of happiness by dollar earned. But here is the part that I want to get to. So I am very passionate about a book called The Happiness Trap. Uh, the Happiness Trap is a book by Dr. Russ Harris, and this is the book that introduced me to this concept of ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, it's actually just pronounced like the word ACT. And I went to a training long ago, and ACT was the what was being taught there. But there was a concept around happiness that just kind of blew me away. And so I recommended and ha- handed this book out, um, I don't know, maybe dozens or 100 copies or more over the years, because even just because of this part that I'm about to share with you. So I do highly encourage anyone to go buy the book, The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. And, uh, and he has some other books out as well. I think I've just finished one called The Confidence Gap that was pretty amazing too. I want to do a podcast on that. But let me, let, me, um, let me read a little bit here from The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. So the introduction. It says, just suppose for a moment that almost everything you believed about finding happiness turned out to be inaccurate, misleading, or false. And suppose that those very beliefs were making you miserable. What if the very effort to find happiness was actually preventing you from achieving it? And what if almost everyone that you turned to um, was in the same boat, including all of those psychologists and psychiatrists and self-help gurus who claim to have all the answers? And Dr. Harris says, I'm not posing these questions just to grab your attention, although it certainly grabbed mine. 
this book, The Happiness Trap, is based on a growing body of scientific research that suggests that we're all caught in a powerful psychological trap. We lead our lives ruled by many unhelpful and inaccurate beliefs about happiness, ideas widely accepted because, quote, everybody knows they're true. And I love that. So acceptance and commitment therapy is truly built upon um, a growing body of scientific research, and even more so since the publication of this book. And and so this is where I get into that realm of what pop psychology says versus what what the research shows and what I'm starting to see more and more in my practice. So the beliefs that we hear, kind of these everybody knows their true type of beliefs, seem to make good sense. And that's why we encounter them in almost every self-help book that you've ever read. But unfortunately, um, these misleading ideas create a vicious cycle in which the more we try to find happiness, the more we actually may suffer. And the psychological trap is so well hidden that we don't even have a clue that we're caught in it. So Dr. Harris says that's the bad news. The good news, he says, is there's hope and you can learn how to recognize this happiness trap and more importantly, can learn how to escape. And he does any and he says so by this powerful model of change known as acceptance and commitment therapy or act. And uh, so I want to kind of hit this concept of, of the happiness trap in general. So the, the aim of acceptance and commitment therapy is um, it was first of all, let me say it was developed in the United States by uh, psychologist Stephen Hayes and his colleagues, Kelly Wilson and Kirk Strassel. So acceptance and commitment therapy is what I use almost on a daily basis. And it's effective in helping people with a wide range of problems from depression and anxiety to chronic pain, even drug addiction. And it, for example, in one study, psychologists Patty Bach and Stephen Hayes used acceptance and commitment therapy with patients that were suffering from chronic schizophrenia and found that uh, after four hours of therapy, um, it was sufficient to reduce hospital readmission rates by almost half. And so acceptance and commitment therapy has also been extremely effective in less dramatic problems, like the you know the things that we experience on a day-to-day basis, like quitting smoking or reducing stress in the workplace. And so, and it does, acceptance and commitment therapy has a very firm basis in scientific research. And, uh, and because of that, it's, it's really gra- It's rapidly growing in the popularity with psychologists, uh, marriage and family therapists like myself all around the world. So the goal, the aim of ACT is to help you live a rich, full and meaningful life and helping you learn skills to effectively handle the pain that inevitably comes your way. That's the key. It inevitably comes your way. And part of that searching and striving for happiness um, I think it comes at this cost of we believe that we we shouldn't have pain or suffering. And that is why our brain continually wants to go and find that thing that will make us happy, which as in my role in working with addiction, you can maybe see where that's headed. So if we don't have the skills or tools on how to kind of live through, through those tough moments, or if we believe that we're not supposed to experience those tough moments, then when those tough moments come, our brain wants to find happiness, happiness through eating, through drug addiction, through um, compulsive sexual behavior, through mindless TV, you name it. And so acceptance and commitment therapy does a really nice job of laying out how we deal with those emotions that often lead us trying to sprint for happiness and wherever we can find it. But before we get to that, let's talk about happiness. So is happiness normal? Um, so in the Western world, we now we, we have a higher standard of living than humans ever have known before. Again, this is coming from that book, The Happiness Trap. We have better medical treatment, better food, better housing conditions, better sanitation, more money, more welfare, welfare <laughs> easy for me to say, welfare services, more access to education and justice and travel and entertainment, career opportunities. Um, and I love this concept. Uh, he says that today's middle class lives are better than the royalty of not so long ago. I mean, and if you think about that, really is true. So, I mean, we are living in olden days, as they would have said, as kings. Yet why on earth are we not happy? So the, the self-esteem people, um, the, you know, the, the sections of stores uh, with where people are looking for self-help 
And um, the, the, the bookstores are packed with books on depression and anxiety and stress and just everything, relationship problems, addictions, more. And then we have experts who are bombarding us daily with advice on how to improve our lives. I guess kind of I'm trying to do the same, right? The number of psychologists and psychiatrists, and this is interesting, marriage and family counselors. My hand is, is uh, I raised my hand here. Social workers, life coaches are increasing every single year, yet despite all of the help and advice, human unhappiness does not seem to be diminishing, uh, but it's growing by leaps and bounds. So that's where Russ Harris says, isn't there something wrong with this picture? And, and that's what blows me away. They're, the number of therapists are up. The books out there are up. People on, selling programs are up. But why are we not happier? And so it's going to sound a little bit, we're going to get down here for a minute, but we're going to pick you back up. So the statistics are, are mind-boggling. In any given year, almost 30% of the adult population will suffer from a recognized psych- psychological disorder. And the World Health Organization estimates that depression is currently the fourth biggest, costliest, and most debilitating disease in the world. And by the year 2020, it will be the second biggest. And in any given week, one-tenth of the adult population is suffering from clinical depression, and one in five people will suffer from it at some point in their lifetime. And furthermore, one in four adults at some stage of their life will suffer from drug or alcohol addiction, which is why there are now over 20 million alcoholics in the United States alone. And that number is increasing. But more startling and sobering than all of these stats is that almost one in two people will go through a stage in life when they consider suicide, and they will struggle with it for a period of two weeks or longer. And scarier still is one in 10 people at some point will actually attempt to kill themselves. So as Russ Harris points out in this book, think about those numbers for a moment. Think of your friends and family and coworkers, and almost half of them at some point are going to be so overwhelmed in their lives that they honestly think about suicide. And, and in my field, that I mean, that is the part that breaks my heart. I've talked about this before, that when I get people at times who have, you know, they have, they have had an attempt, they've, they've attempted or, or been so close to wanting to commit suicide, that then at that point, that's when people kind of say, hey, we got to do whatever we can to keep this person alive, to keep this person in the ballgame. And at that time, I feel like at that point, then people are more willing to listen and say, um, okay, whatever it takes, what do you want to do? Who do you want to be? You know, speak your truths. And, you know, I just am so determined to have us be able to, to express this dialogue before we get to that point where somebody feels like they want to commit suicide, that we can talk about what, what are your truths? You know, what is your, your authentic self? What do you want to do? Who do you want to be? And that's why all these other things that I get so passionate about, the EFT and the Nurtured Heart, we got to be able to, to talk, talk with our partners, talk with our kids, our teens, and not have them feel shut down. Um, that is, that, you know, it all plays into this feeling where people just don't feel happy. So, all right, <laughs> I need to take a breath, right? So back to the book, The Happiness Trap. Why is it so difficult to be happy? I love this part of the book. Russ Harris says to answer this question, let's take a journey back in time. Where And, and he goes on to talk about, and I'll try to just summarize, but he talks about that the, the human mind, our the modern human mind it has this amazing ability to, it, well, now currently you know, we can create and we can communicate and we can organize and make lists and we can plan and we can do all of these things. But that is something that has evolved over the last hundred thousand years or, or however long that it has been um, since, since you know, back in the early hunter-gatherer days where, where we were worried about staying alive. And so Harris says that uh, our minds didn't evolve to make us uh, feel good so that we could write jokes and poems and sing songs and that sort of thing. That early on, that's not what we were designed to do. Our minds evolved to help us survive in a world that was fraught with danger. So here's what he talks about. He says that imagine, and and I always think about this as far as like fight or flight brain or however it goes. So back in the day, so imagine that uh, you are, you know, 
you're an early human hunter-gatherer, and you have these basic essential needs in order to survive. You are basically trying to survive and reproduce. So you have um, you have food, you have water, you have shelter, and you have sex. I mean, that is really it. Anything else, I mean, you weren't sitting there, you know, writing poems on the cave walls. I mean, to a point, I guess we have some cave drawings or etchings. But it was really just a matter of how do we make it from day to day. So the primitive mind was basically what Russ Harris calls a don't get killed device. And that proved incredibly useful. The better you were at not getting killed, the more that you would reproduce and, um, and, and the more that you, the more you lived and the more children that you had. So with every generation that came, the human mind started getting really, really good at predicting and avoiding danger. So think about that, uh, you know, and now if, if we think about that, um, after however long it has been, where we are at now, the modern mind now is constantly on the lookout for danger as well. And it's assessing and judging everything we encounter. Is it good or bad, safe or dangerous, harmful or helpful? And But these days, it's not the saber-toothed tiger or the woolly mammoth or the opposing tribe. Now, we're looking at our worries. What we're constantly assessing for is, are we going to lose our job? Are we going to be rejected? Are we going to get a ticket? Are we going to get cancer? Are we going to embarrass ourselves in public? Um, are we going to put on a podcast that everybody thinks is a joke and nobody's going to listen? <laughs> um, these are the things that we war- that, that our minds warn us about. And so these are our, our, there's a million other worries that we can have. So what do we do? We spend a ton of time worrying about things that more often than not aren't going to happen. I didn't even do my podcast for months after I wanted to because of this, I don't know, what if I, what if I sound like an idiot? What if nobody listens? What if somebody tells me, you know, that what I'm doing is even worse? All these things that were just these, these things that, that were probably not even going to happen. So that's another, so that's where the, the mind is right now. So it went from this don't get killed device and had to predict um, danger. And now we're predicting and avoiding dangers that don't even exist. Or, and, and at times, you know, it is nice to be able to predict and plan. But when our mind is just going like this constantly, you can see how this can become overwhelming. So another essential tool for the survival of any human, uh, according to Harris, was to belong to a group. I love this. If your group or clan boots you out, it won't be long before then the wolves find you and you are going to be eaten. So the rejection from the group became just of utmost importance. You did not want to get rejected by your group. So what did you do? You compared yourself with other members of the clan. Am I fitting in? Am I doing the right thing? Am I contributing enough? Am I as good as the others? Am I doing anything that might get me booted out? And he says, does that sound familiar? So our modern day minds are continually warning us of rejection and comparing us to the rest of society. So no wonder that we just spend so much of our time and and just burn so many mental calories on worrying whether or not people will like us. We're worried about getting booted out of that group. And so we're always looking to improve ourselves. And we put ourselves down because we don't measure up to these all everybody that we're seeing. A hundred thousand years ago, the group was small. I mean, it was this little group of of your your clan. And and so I don't know what you were comparing yourself to. Somebody else's pelt or, uh, you know, somebody who was able to shower, um, ever, or not shower, but bathe one, more than once a year, I, whatever the, whatever the comparisons were. But look what we have to compare ourselves with now. And this isn't just going to be a rant on social media, but now you just glance online, uh, magazines, TV, and you instantly find a whole host of people who appear to be smarter and richer and slimmer and sexier and more famous and more powerful and more successful than we are. And so then, so now think about that. We're comparing ourselves to, to all of these people, these media creations, these uh, TV people, YouTube people, Instagram people, all these people that their whole business is designed to make them look amazing because guess what? Then you're going to want to look amazing and you will buy their product or their thing or whatever it is that, uh, that they're selling. So, and even worse, 
To make matters worse, our minds are so now uh, sophisticated, um, complicated, that, that we can even create this image of this person that we think that we want to be. And then we even compare ourselves to that. I'm constantly doing this. I mean, you know, if I can just lose the extra 10 pounds or if, you know, oh, those uh, six pack abs still pop or whatever, then if I get to that point, then I will be happy. So I'm comparing myself to this person that I, it probably isn't even going to matter. And uh, quite frankly, right now with my um, love of some of the things that are sweet and delicious, uh, I don't know if that's ever going to happen again. So what chance do we have if we are just constantly comparing ourselves to all these other people worried about getting booted out of the clan and our minds are constantly looking for, you know, anticipating dangers that aren't even real? So for any stone, as Harris says, any stone age person with ambition, the general rule for success is get more and get better. The better your weapons, the more food you can kill, the larger your food stores, the greater your chances of survival in times of scarcity. The better your shelter, the safer you are from weather and wild animals, the more children you have, the greater chance that some will survive into adulthood. So he says it's no surprise that our modern mind constantly looks for more and better. Here we go, right? If we had more money, if we had a better job, if we had a higher status, if we had a better body, if we were, you know, if we had more love in our lives, if we had a better partner, then we would be happy, right? And if we succeed, this is that part where if we actually do get more money or a better car, or better looking body, then we're satisfied. Oh, there we go. Now I'm happy. But even that only lasts for a while. It's called the hedonistic treadmill. Uh, is that what it's called? Hang on. That I, I had some research on that one too. That one's pretty fascinating. Um, I believe it is the hedonistic treadmill. So it is that concept that we, once we get to this place, then we'll be happy. It is the money, the body, the house, the whatever. But sooner or later, and usually sooner, then we want more. So Harris's argument is, thus, evolution has shaped our brains so that we are hardwired to suffer psychologically, to compare, to evaluate, to criticize ourselves, to focus on what we're lacking, to rapidly become dissatisfied with what we have, and then to imagine all sorts of frightening scenarios, most of which will never happen. So no wonder that humans find it so hard to be happy. So I hope that that kind of brings this... Um, this kind of awareness around maybe how many of us got to the point that we are through these comparisons. You know, it's kind of our brain doing what it thinks is the right thing to do. And as we noted at the beginning, that uh, if we look at this um, positive psychology movement, even continuing from that trend that started in the 60s with humanistic and existential psychology, that in this concept that uh, Jennifer Heck pointed out in The Happiness Myth, that um, we're all looking for happiness. We're comparing ourselves to others and others' variations and, and brands of happiness. And the reality is that our own brand of happiness might be different and it can even change over time and it needs to constantly be evaluated. So what exactly is happiness? So we want it, um, we seek for it, we strive for it. And uh, and I want to kind of wrap this this episode up today by talking about in this book, again, Happiness Trap, um, Harris talks about the word happiness having two very different meanings, and I love this concept. Two different meanings. Here we go. The common meaning of the word is feeling good. So in other words, feeling a sense of pleasure, gladness, or gratification. We all enjoy these feelings, so it's no surprise that we chase after them. We chase after these feelings of gladness, pleasure, gratification. However, like all human emotions or feelings of happiness don't last. So no matter how hard we try to hold on to them, they slip away every time. And as we will see, a life spent in pursuit of these good feelings is, in the long term, it's, it's unsatisfying. In fact, the harder we chase after pleasurable feelings, the more likely we are to suffer from anxiety and depression. Because those feelings will come, but then guess what? They go. And then at that point, then now we go back to that comparison. 
and or or we need more or we need to get better because that's what's going to make that happiness last. That's what we think, right? So the other far less common meaning that he shares this meaning of happiness is, and this one's, boy, pay attention right here, living a rich, full, and meaningful life. When we take action on the things that truly matter deep in our hearts, when we move in directions that we consider valuable and worthy, when we, and here's this, I love, when we clarify what we stand for in life, and then we act accordingly, then our lives become rich and full and meaningful, and we experience a powerful sense of vitality. So this is not some fleeting feeling, that it is a profound sense of a life well lived. And here's the key, although such a life will undoubtedly give us many pleasurable feelings, it's also going to give us some uncomfortable ones. It's going to give us, we, the, I, life is going to bring us sadness and fear and anger. And this is only to be expected because if we are living a full life, we will feel the full range of human emotion. So in the book, this the book, The Happiness Trap, and I want you to know, I plan on doing a, a, a handful of um, podcasts on this, talking about this concept of acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, this is this is kind of the tools to use to to kind of get out of this happiness trap. But I hope that today you can kind of recognize where this concept of happiness comes from, um, whether it's uh, Jennifer Hecht's book, The Happiness Myth, right? Or we believe in what um, uh, Harris is, is positing there with the happiness trap. You know, here we go, happiness myths, happiness trap. All of this pop psychology and these things saying, here's how you, you get to be happy. And that last definition of happiness, which is to me the most profound, is that we basically need to find, we need to find what truly matters deep in our hearts. We need to move in directions we consider valuable and worthy. We need to clarify what we stand for in life and act accordingly. Because that's when our lives become rich and full and meaningful. Now, if you can start to look back on now EFT, nurtured heart, whatever it is, is when we're trying to even express some of these truths and then we are met with these fixing and judgment statements, then we feel what? We feel like, okay, my version of reality or my my passions, my, you know, must not be real or must not be okay because other people are telling me that it's not. Um, I remember going back to school to be a therapist and hearing from others that that was not a smart thing to do. I already had a career. And uh, oh my goodness, if I would have gone, if I would have followed that, if I would have just listened to other people, how how I feel like how miserable I would be. Or I remember when even thinking, okay, I really want a podcast. I've been listening to podcasts for nine years while I run. And just I just I just wanted to, I just felt passionate about a lot of these things now that I was learning in therapy that thank goodness I, you know, I, I, I chased that dream and didn't listen to people that told me that that wasn't something that I should be doing. And then I still waited a long time before I put, I wanted to put this podcast in. And I don't want to sound like I have everything figured out or I'm some raging narcissist or that sort of thing. But the feedback has just been so, so beautiful. And, uh, and I just am so grateful for that, that there are a lot of people out there that do feel like they don't know how to express themselves. They don't know how to be vulnerable. They don't know how to chase their own version of authenticity. And I believe that all of that comes together in having us feel this concept of just not feeling happy. So what we're going to talk about in future episodes that have to do with this acceptance and commitment therapy and finding happiness is that, again, it is normal to have the feelings that we're going to have. It is absolutely normal. That's what I love about acceptance and commitment therapy. Acceptance and commitment therapy says that we have those thoughts and feelings and emotions and desires and all of these things because we're human and because we have all of the experiences that we have, our unique experiences that have brought us to this moment in life, our baggage, if you will, that we are carrying if you can see me right now, I, apparently I'm holding two very large bags because my hands are out by my sides. But that is the baggage we bring to this moment. Normal to have the feelings and thoughts, but what do we do with them? Now, we talked about that at the end there. We're going to clarify what your core your, your core beliefs are, your, your values, 
And we're going to look at those. And then if, if these thoughts that you have don't line up with your core beliefs, values, or goals, then guess what? They're not productive. And they're just a thought. A thought is a thought is a thought. We have lots of them in any given moment. And so a lot of those thoughts are going to come in and they're going to be the thoughts that others have said, you shouldn't, you can't, that sort of thing. And then we're going to say, eh, you're right, I shouldn't. But if that one doesn't line up with your core belief, value, or goal of wanting to be authentic or genuine or, or chase your dreams or feel your passions or, or if you feel a calling in life from, uh, from you know, from whatever inside of you, a calling from God, a calling that, you know, you just know in your heart that this is the, the path you want to you go after, whatever that is, then if a thought, belief, value, goal isn't kind of in line with that, um, that comes through your mind, then let's move that one on through because guess what? You got plenty of other thoughts coming up behind it. So acceptance and commitment therapy helps you change the relationship with your thoughts. It does and, you know, it leads to some nice mindfulness practice. And when one feels more authentic and genuine, then one feels this more, this concept of inner wealth and here's that word, happiness. So thank you so much for for taking the time to listen today. I hope that this made sense. I realize that I have, if you could see, I have notes everywhere and they're all thrown all over the side. Um, I don't remember doing that, but it's just that I, this is a, a passionate topic. Uh, I, I know I, I often hear that, uh, you know, I do identify as, as for the most part an optimist, but boy, I mean, I can have crummy times all throughout the day. And, uh, and, you know, and for those of you who maybe do are really trying hard to stay positive and, and you hear people say, oh, it looks so easy for you. It must be easy for you. And I know inside, you know, we all have our own individual problems and struggles, and that can be really hard to hear. And but ultimately, we want to find our true authentic version of ourselves, which leads to this, this concept of happiness. So we'll cover more on acceptance commitment therapy down the road. Um, if you have any, any questions, any concepts, thoughts, um, even your favorite quotes on happiness or anything, I'll put them up on the website with this, uh, um, with this episode. But feel free to send them to um, contact at TonyOverbay.com. And I would just encourage you, please stop by TonyOverbay.com and sign up for uh, I've got a mailing list that is there. Um, that will, uh, at some point down the road, I'll alert you to some, some work that I'm doing to try and help with these passion projects that I have, the, the marriage therapy, um, the parenting. And I want to do some work with this, more work with this on happiness as well. Um, I'm grateful for, uh, I want to end today with a, a, you know, another shout out to one of the sponsors that's been with me, which is Eli's Extracts. Um, please stop by there, E-L-I-S-E-X-T-R-A-C-T-S.com. And I got to tell you, there, at some point, it will be fun to tell a little bit of a story of uh, my involvement with uh, the folks at Eli's Extracts, because that too, that is a that is an authentic passion project. I mean, it's it's shaving cream. Guess what? I am a bald individual um, who shaves head, face, and and sometimes legs. I'm not afraid of that. My masculinity is still intact, and uh, love shaving stuff. Love smell things that smell good and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of got me involved with the the folks at Eli's Extracts. Um, and that was something that I think a lot of people, when they hear, they say, you like shaving cream? You know, it's like, yeah, it's part of me being authentic. Um, so I'll have to tell that story one time, but if you, uh, head over there, uh, all natural organic shave cream scented with essential oils, use the coupon code virtual couch all together for 25% off any order. And, uh, I'm just truly grateful for the opportunity that I have to hopefully, um, express a little bit of these passions for you. A lot of great interviews coming up. Um, but I, I really, there's more of these, um, kind of soapbox topics that I really do need to get out there. So I hope you'll bear with me while I do more of these one-on-one podcasts as well as with the interviews. So I hope that everybody will go out there today and just kind of pay attention, have have a little more awareness around um, those concepts. Are you comparing yourself to the group? Do you feel like you need more to be happy? 
and uh, and we're you know start start embracing a, a, a principle of mindfulness. Start to learn how to just sit with your thoughts and just recognize and notice that these are just thoughts and, and feelings and and you can note them, but they're gonna they they can move through you and it's okay and you can and you can make it through. You can breathe through um, a, a rough patch and uh, and the more you do that, the more your brain is going to get trained to really. Um, just kind of stay focused on the things that are true and meaningful to you and uh, not let yourself ruminate or get caught up in those thoughts that can can kind of lead you down a dark path. Um, if you are suffering from clinical depression, please, please go see a psychiatrist, go meet with a therapist, your doctor, um, talk to somebody, please do, because uh, there is help out there. And if it's just a matter of you feeling like, you know, your version of happiness is something that other people are not going to appreciate, then um, I do highly recommend the book, The Happiness Trap, uh, The Happiness Myth. There's some really good tools out there. So until I talk with you again, I will uh, we'll turn it over to the, the lovely, the talented, the former guest of the Virtual Couch, Aurora Florence. Truly now, um, something I'm passionate about, uh, the title of her song, It's Wonderful. Compressed emotions flying past, our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind, it's Wasting rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most Thank you.